Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. From our financial life, to our relationships, to our kids, to our health, we're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about women, working, money, and family. And in every episode, we will consider the research and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Rachel Ellison. I'm an executive coach and a management consultant who works with companies big and small to design workplace policies that work for all employees. And most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Jennifer Owens. But on this special episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by professors Dan Casino and Yasmin Bethan Casino. Yasmin is a professor of sociology at Montclair State University, while Dan is a professor of political science at Fairleigh Dickinson University and director of experimental research for the Public Mind Poll. And together, they represent one of the first research teams we cited in the earliest episode of The Breadwinners. So I'm very happy to have them join us today. Welcome, Yasmin and Dan. Thank you. Thank you for having us over. Great to be here. So... As you might know, at the Breadwinners, we like to start our conversations off with a stat. Um, And of the many stats you both have researched, you've analyzed, you've written about, I think one of the most fascinating ones to me is from your 2014 study. So you found that a wife who earns $1,000 more than her husband can only expect him to do 11 extra minutes a day of housework. You speculate that being out-earned by their wives threatens men's, ma- threatens men's masculinity. So they react by doing less cleaning, which is stereotypically a feminine task. And this was a shift that you saw after the 2008 recession. What was happening at that moment between men and women at home? Well, the 2008 recession, and this, this is the problem with our research. Everything that's good for our research is bad for the world. So the the 2008-2009, the Great Recession, was really good for our research because in the early days of that recession, it was very much a man session. It was very much hitting men first. Uh, and the, it was the later stages that hit women. So initially it was these uh, fields like construction and extraction. They really got hit hard by the recession. And those are dominated by men. And it was later on in the recession when you had these austerity measures from state and local governments that started to hit women more. And so it really works as a natural experiment to see what the effects of losing income for men are and then for women. And we also didn't believe, like, if, if, if you look at the media at the time, they always talked about men sessions, something is happening to men, as if it was a great picture for women. And of course, as a feminist, right, especially one studying the workforce, I found that hard to believe that anything would be good for women. So that's how we got started. <laughs> Good there. Um, I, and it's interesting. I had never heard the term man session. I don't know if I was just not paying attention so closely in 2008, 2009, but that's, that's interesting. Um, interesting, interesting. So you've done a lot of work on gender dynamics, both of you, and identity around job loss um, and the man session. You talk about the idea of gender role threat, um, can you tell us what you mean by gender role threat and how that how that plays in? Sure. I mean, we talk about gender, and people often conflate that with sex, right? Sex is closer to being biological, where gender <laughs> is about social roles that we're put into by society. And for men, gender is a very tenuous concept. I mean, you think about it. We can say someone isn't really a man. And you understand what I mean when I say that. It means they're not fulfilling the masculine roles the society has said men are supposed to do. And so for men, 
it is, gender is something you have, but something you can lose, something that's tenuous. Well, it's like Judith Butler, it's a performance too. It's not something that you perform just for others. You, it's a constant performance for yourself as, as well, that you're a man, you show the others you're a man, and a part of it has to do with chores. Every time you perform a house chore, you're actually performing masculinity or femininity. And it's interesting because men are looking to assert their gender roles. They're looking to assert their masculinity, and they're going to find all sorts of ways to do it. And in the United States, masculinity has three basic, big, overarching roles. Men as fathers, men as providers, and men as protectors. And these three roles kind of go together. Um, So if you're a good father, you also provide for your family and you protect your family. And when those big roles are threatened, men's gender identity is threatened. Their, their concept of themselves as a man is threatened. And they have to find some way to reinforce that gender role. We call these compensatory activities. And doing or not doing the dishes is a compensatory activity. It's a way of showing off, hey, I might be earning the money, but I'm not going to do any dishes or I'm not going to vacuum. It would be amazing if a part of masculinity was through doing the dishes. Like, that's how you perform masculinity. That's how you're a good man, you do the dishes. That would be that would be fun. We talked about um, some research around around dishwashing, dishwasher loading uh, practices that Maytag had done. It's been <laughs> yeah, interesting to look at that. So, so given the reality that we're living in right now, right, where where from a protector provider perspective, we're seeing massive job loss. We're seeing this horrifying, you know, very anxiety producing reality. How do you think gender role? threat is playing out right now. That's really interesting that from what we've heard so far, it was always men have to work and they can't do stuff at home. I mean, for the first time, we have this natural experiment for dual learner couples that we have a lot of dual learner couples. Both of them are at home and both of them are stuck with a child sometimes or multiple children. Who does childcare or who does housework? I would speculate that it would mostly fall on women more. And we're actually seeing early indications of this, especially, uh, I know the early data I've seen is actually from academia. We've got two professors, a couple, you know, male and a female professor living together. And what we're seeing is that women are, by and large, taking over that workload. And so uh, journal submissions, right, so our measure of productivity among women are way down, but among men, they're way up. So essentially, men are just saying, oh, great, I've got time off, but I have to go to the office, I've got more time to work. And their wives are being left with the uh, left holding the bag and taking care of the children. Yeah, that finding was very unsettling. Uh, and so I, I think we're also seeing a parallel of 2008-2009 in that the first people losing their jobs, the unemployment rate is rising faster among men than it is among women. And again, that's because the really volatile sectors like extraction, construction are dominated by men. And so you know, also in the jobs that are considered essential, which might also think as the dangerous jobs in terms of COVID-19, are dominated by women. So women are more likely to still be going to work than men are. And that represents a threat to men's gender identities. And we can expect a lot of these compensatory behaviors. We're actually already seeing this with some of them. Uh, another article we did was about gun purchasing behavior. So when men are threatened, one of the things they can do to reinforce their gender identity is to buy guns, right? So I'm not the better, but now I can be a better protector. Uh, but buying a gun and gun sales are actually through the roof. So uh, even wow. the last month we have data for, so March um, in March, we saw an increase, I think about 500,000 extra uh, gun permits that were, uh, they were issued or not gun permits, gun background checks issued by the federal government uh, over what we'd normally expect seasonally adjusted for March. So we're already seeing these compensatory activities takes, take shape. 
So they're going to fight the virus with a gun. You know, yeah. so the virus. Both put ours in the lab, so... Jennifer and I actually talked about this in an earlier conversation. There was an article um, by Helen Lewis that said the coronavirus is a disaster for feminism um, and that it's really going to kind of set women back in so many different ways. And and at the end of the conversation, I I wondered out loud to Jennifer, maybe not, right? This is so different than than 2008. This is so different in many ways from anything we've ever experienced. Um, Is there any possibility that it won't be a disaster <laughs> right? That these compensatory behaviors might shift, that suddenly dishwashing is going to be a masculine behavior. I mean, I know I'm sort of, this is magical thinking right now, but I'm just curious what you think about that. And because on Instagram, you see a lot of men with their like sourdough breads, right? So this could be an opportunity for men to actually embrace. And in our study, we found that very liberal men, when they lost their jobs in 2008, uh, said, you know what, I'm going to embrace this. My new masculinity will be through caring for my family. I will be doing full-time childcare. So that's the outcome that we could uh, hope for, that a lot of men could be embracing childcare or homeschooling. And we actually do see this in the data. I mean, so again, we've got those pillars of masculinity. And so masculinity, while uh, it is a very powerful force in men's psyches, is also very, very adaptable. So one of our earliest findings was about cooking, right? So housework is always this bugbear, like men don't want to do that. Uh, but cooking after about two th- after about uh, the mid two thousands becomes a masculine activity. And we found that very surprising because cooking traditionally was a very feminine thing to do. Right. right, at home everyday cooking, but with gadgets and a lot of television shows, a lot of men found this uh, as a way of expressing their masculinity. And we can see something similar happening with uh, other ways of expressing masculinity. So, one of your jobs is being the protector, and what we've seen in recent years is men have taken that as part of ensuring the health of their families. So, being the ones in charge of physical activity and exercise, making sure everyone is healthy. And it's entirely possible men will take that on as a way of displaying their masculinity in the absence of money, saying, oh, yeah, but I'm the one who keeps my family healthy. I'm the one who keeps my family safe. And so we could see men taking on more roles like that. Um, I, I do think that while, as Jasmine said, liberal men become more liberal, conservative men also become more conservative. And there are a lot more conservative men in the United States than there are liberal men. So on average, the movement is towards conservatism. But even still, you're going to see a, sub, a subgroup of men who become more liberal, more feminist. And if we see more of these images on social media, I think that could be a nice push forward. Yeah, absolutely. I thought it was fascinating, your research about cooking, uh, because as we talked about it, we were realizing how much post-recession um, how much we saw of this sort of foodie culture grow, right? And all of those, app, like the plated and um, blue apron and so many different, th- I, you know, ideas and, and innovation around around home cooking came out around that uh, post-recession. I thought that was such a really interesting um, way of understanding how we shifted as a society. Um, so in terms of understanding this protecting role, um, Dan, you actually had a piece of research that I saw about how men specifically were reacting to the coronavirus in terms of uh, hand washing. And I'm just sort of wondering how you reconcile that with the, if, if you could tell us more about that. That Apparently they don't, which was very scary. <laughs> uh, sure. So, uh, you know, look, when I see this, you know, again, whatever's bad for the world is good for our research. So a lot of our research consists of taking men, scaring the bejesus out of them and seeing how they <laughs> 
Which, which luck is a little bit fun. Let's let's be honest. And so I, I saw this work on you know coronavirus and said, okay, good. Let's take let's find survey data and see how men are responding because this is certainly something that's very scary. So how right. are men responding to this? And one thing we find is that first off, men in general are less threatened by it. They're more likely to say, no, I'm going to be fine. Which goes back to traditional masculinity, right? I'm strong, mm-hmm. therefore I can beat viruses. I guess not taking care of their health or doing checkups. Yeah. Um, but in addition to that, what you would see is when men are threatened, they have to double down. So when men get a little bit scared of the coronavirus, like they are, you know, in terms of health or even economic threat, they become more likely to embrace activities like social distancing and frequent hand washing. When they get really scared, when there's a really big threat, especially a really big economic threat, when they think they're going to lose their jobs or they've already lost their jobs, they become actually less likely to embrace those behaviors. They become more likely to say, no, I'm not going to wash my hands. Why? Because I am so tough. I don't even need to. I don't need, yeah. to, I don't need to wash my hands because I am so tough. I'm in charge of this. I, you know, I don't need to do this. And basically men asserting their masculinity in a way that could potentially kill them. Now, we should know that there's an upside to this, which is sometimes uh, men talk about things without actually doing them. And so this could be men being less likely to say that they're going to wash their hands without actually doing it. We see this also with guns, right? So the reason we, in the gun data, the reason we use FBI background checks is because when you actually ask men if they own guns, they say that they own a gun in order to assert their masculinity. They massively overestimate the number of guns they have, too. Yeah. So men are saying overestimate it like they they lost count of it. <laughs> like where yeah, how do they over- more people say that they have guns that they actually do. So background check is a more accurate oh, I see, I see. Uh, one of my favorite findings in this is a survey. It was actually carried out by the AP in 2018, and they was this giant national survey called the Vocast, huge sample. And one of the things they did was they asked people a portion of the sample, and they asked basically at the end if they were gay. Um, and of course, so for some men, being asked if you're gay is an attack on your masculinity, right? And so a subset of men randomly select to be asked if they're gay. And then afterwards, they still have a couple of questions left in the survey. And one is, do you have a gun at home or not? And the men who were asked if they were gay became four points more likely to report owning a gun. Now, where did those guns come from, right? A survey experiment shouldn't be able to produce more guns, but it does because men are just going to say, um, you just have gay. Uh, I'm not gay. And I have a gun. I promise I have a gun. So, wow. you know, so men do talk about these things oftentimes. So the compensatory activity can't just be telling an interviewer that you're doing something, even if you're not really doing it. And I sincerely hope that's what's going on with hand washing. But what's interesting is that why is this a threat? Why is women doing well in the job markets a threat to men? And, and we see this in the in the data that men are increasingly likely to believe that they are being discriminated against on the basis of their gender, right? They think that men are facing gender discrimination or sex discrimination, uh, mm. which is a word on its face. Um, but you know, that number of men who believe that has been increasing. And we're now at a majority of men who believe they face at least a little bit of discrimination because of their gender. So they see any gain for women as being a deficit for them, right? Because when you've been on top for a thousand years, any movement towards equality feels like discrimination. Right. And I, so I want to pause you there for a second, because I'm really curious, when did that start? When did we get to the point where, you know, I know where men were like, absolutely not. This is, you know, this women's advancement, the women's movement, you know, it, it's too threatening to us and we need to fight back. When did that happen exactly? 
Because we've seen it, but I don't know when the shift was. We can like pinpoint that point of when it shifted. But I think it's not just one thing, but it's a combination of things. It's a combination of, I think, women's movements combined with uh, the loss of economic advantage. Yeah, and it's the one of the problems with this is look the idea that men are being discriminated against on the basis of their sex uh, is like is patently absurd, right? And so, <laughs> yeah, we didn't bother asking about this on surveys until like 2014, 2015, 2016. And right. that when we see that people go that as researchers go, oh my god, like how are men believing this? Um, so we know it's been set, you know, it's the best survey data. This goes back to about 2015. And that's when we start seeing men, at least Republican men in large numbers saying it. But there's also correlated with other beliefs that these same men have. So these are the same men that will also tell you that whites face discrimination or that Christians face discrimination or the heterosexuals face discrimination. Essentially, they're looking for excuses like, why aren't I getting ahead? Oh, it's because society's against me. Society, if everything was fair, I would be in charge. But as a white heterosexual Christian man, I'm not in charge, so it must be discrimination. Wow. Yeah. Entitlement. Mm-hmm. Yes. Really interesting and frankly terrifying conclusions that they're coming to. So when you see when you see all these protests, I mean, I, I know there's so many layers to this, but the men who are standing in the protests against social distancing. And I've heard a lot of talk about kind of this is about, uh, you know, economic, uh, economic, um, the lack of economic opportunities. So wanting to wanting to be able to go back to work, essentially. So what are these, you know, what are these men who are standing there? Are they feeling that their masculinity is so threatened they need to fight back in that way? Is that what you think is playing in there? Breadwinner is a central component of masculinity. So for them to be able to assert masculinity and, and be a good father in a way or a good good man, they need to go back to work. And I think that's what's in their head right now. Yeah, and politics is a really important way for men to express masculinity. I mean, political parties and political issues don't have sex, but they do have gender, right? People in America do think of the Democratic Party as being female or being feminine, and the Republican Party as being masculine. Issues have uh, similar gender valences. And so what's happening is people talk about economic anxiety, like, oh, this is not economic anxiety, it's racism or it's conservatism or whatever. I think one of the big takeaways from our research is that those things are not separable. Economic anxiety is gender anxiety, is racial anxiety. All these anxieties are bundled up together because they're all part of these social identities that men have. So these men, it's their masculinity being threatened by their inability to uh, go to work. But in addition, they're going to express that gender identity threat with political stances saying, oh, now I care much more about my freedom or I care about my role as spiritual head of the household. You're not letting me go to church. So they're going to find ways of expressing that. They don't have anything necessarily to do with gender, but they're finding ways to express their gender through these other activities. Right. Yeah, no, that makes sense. It makes sense. You can't tease apart those different motivations for for that kind of statement. Um, They're all kind of bundled up together. That makes a lot of sense to me. So we're, you know, we're in this time where so much is uncertain. We really, there's so many open questions. Um, As you said, you know, when there's things that are bad for the world, it's good for your research. Um, So we're definitely in a place that's, that's pretty bad for the world. Um, So I'm just curious when you think about, you know, it's impossible to predict, but when you think about based on what you know, what you've seen in the past, where are we going 
from here? Where, what does your research say about where, where this might lead us going forward? What predictions might you have? I'm curious to see what's happening at home. I think we're looking at men doing protests, but what is actually happening at a very micro level at the everyday? Are women, are men doing more housework? Are they embracing any kind of housework? Or just like we saw in 2014 with cooking, is that being masculinized? Is there any other chore at home that's being masculinized? So that could be a more positive story for us to research. And, and I do think there's reason to be uh, optimistic about masculinity uh, because masculinity is really, really flexible and that men can decide overnight that something is now masculine, right? So again, cooking, the idea that, oh, cooking, okay, so cooking was masculine only when it was a special event or when it was cooking with meat or cooking outside. Barbecue. Yeah. But then if men just decide, oh, wait, I can make every night a special night and do crazy, awesome meals every night, then suddenly every night is now, um, cooking every day is now masculine activity. Or with fatherhood, we didn't see a lot of, you know, fathers with their kids in the playground, but the more they got praised, the more we see them. Right. And so those sort of assertions of masculinity, these really socially positive, socially desirable assertions of masculinity are becoming more common. And that's probably the thing. And so the more threat you have, like the more scared the men get, uh, the more they're going to assert the masculinity. And if we can find ways for them to do so in a positive manner, we're going to get more of those positive assertions of masculinity. So, I, you know, I think I'm relatively hopeful. Uh, also, we should note that the men who really have the most toxic uh, views of masculinity, the sort of we call hostile sexism, sort of masculinity as being oppressive towards women or towards sexual minorities – those guys are old and they're going to die. So, you know, in the long term, things work out. <laughs> so we're going to see, we're going to see a shift. Yeah. I, so I think we should, I guess we should encourage people to post um, about men to post about dishwashing and other things that can kind of encourage them to, to that, for that to become a trend, right? That masculinity is now going to be associated with, with things that, that it wasn't before. So it didn't happen in a vacuum. I think the more people like it, whether it's on Instagram or in the playground, I think the more they're likely to do it. Let's hope. Let's let's hope that for the future. Well, thank you both so much, Yasmin and Dan, for joining us today. Thank you to our listeners for joining us as well on the breadwinners. Whether you're a chance or a choice breadwinner, we hope you enjoyed the time you spent with us and that you'll share your own story at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com. How are you making it work? We'd love to know. How are you splitting dishwashing, cooking? How are you splitting up all the tasks that you have to do right now during this pandemic? Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. Let us know what you think about the breadwinners. Help us tell the stories that mean the most to you. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.